Mr. Trevor, I'm glad you could join us this morning. Um, if I haven't shaken your hand this morning, or if you see me hesitant to do so, it's, it's not because of you, it's because of me. I burned my hand last night on a really hot pot. I still have a blister right here, and I don't want it popping on anyone. Um, and it's also uncomfortable uh, for it to be touched. So um, if I don't give you my usual high five or handshake, that's the reason. Um, I do have a book recommendation for you this morning. Uh, with the library, we have, we're expanding the books that are in the library. We've ordered a bunch, and so I will be recommending at least one book a week. And the first book I'm recommending is um, A Radical Comprehensive Call to Holiness uh, by Joel Beakey and Michael Barrett. Uh, this is my copy. Uh, there's a copy in the library right now. Um, I'm not even through it yet. Uh, but this book is essentially about holiness. If you're familiar with J.C. Ryle's book, um, Holiness, or John Owen's book, uh, The Mortification of Sin, this is along the same lines, except I think this book is far better. If I had to take two books with me on a deserted island, it would be the Bible, and it would be this book. Um, I cannot recommend this book enough. Uh, you can read, you can take any of the chapters on their own, or you can read them in order, uh, it is rich with scripture, it is rich with history as well, and Beakey is a wonderful uh, poetic wordsmith. He has a way to really um, speak of the truth of God in a way that will move your soul. So again, I highly, highly recommend this book. I will assign this book to my boys for them to read. Um, it is an excellent book. Again, I cannot recommend it um, enough uh, to um, you all. Now, before we begin our message, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this moment, for this opportunity for us to gather as one body, one family. We ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word, by your spirit, that we would hear your voice, hear the truth that we need to hear, that we would be focused and not distracted, that we would strive to, if we're note-takers, to take notes well, and if we're not note-takers, to pay attention and to hear and to keep uh, the thoughts in order, Father, so that we may glean from your truth what you would have us know and to understand so that we can apply it to our lives by the power of the Spirit so that we can glorify you in all that we do, Father. So, Father, this morning we ask that you would edify, that you would sanctify, that you would equip us for the purposes of your glory. And we ask this by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. What place does the Old Covenant have in our lives today? What value does it bring? What was the need that caused God to establish the new in place of the old? What exactly are the promises of the New Covenant? These are questions that we are going to seek to answer uh, this morning with our passage, Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. If you have not already opened there, please go ahead and open there. We have Bibles uh, throughout uh, the seats around you, uh, and so I would encourage you to have it open. We will have the passage on the screen, but we will refer back to it, and as you can tell by the back of the bulletin, we will be going to other passages quickly as well, so it's good to have the main text open for you for your reference. Last week, we covered the main point of the epistle to the Hebrews. In verses 1 through 2 of chapter 8, we saw that the main point is that we have this kind of a high priest. 
one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And as such, the ministry that Jesus has obtained is more excellent than the ministry of the Levites. More specifically, his ministry is more excellent than the ministry of the old covenants. For the covenant that Jesus mediates is better because it is enacted, it is established on better promises. Now, this week, the author reminds us exactly what those promises are and the content of the new covenant. And that is our focus this morning. We will read our passage in its entirety, then we will consider the need for the new covenant, followed by considering the promises of the new covenant and how we are to receive and partake of them. So at this time, let us read Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. So the author has already addressed at length in his letter why the old priesthood was ineffective. And certainly that bleeds over into why the old covenant was as well. But now the author explicitly tackles that topic by citing Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, where we get the new covenant. In verses 7 through 9, as well as verse 13, the author speaks to the need and the anticipation of the new covenant that Jesus is the mediator of. When the author, in verse 7, speaks of the first covenant, he is referring to what we call today the old covenant, the one that was given to Israel on Mount Sinai through Moses, a covenant that the people of Israel, as we read about in Exodus 24, agreed to enter into. And this first covenant was not faultless. For if it were, then there would have been no need for the second. Hence why the author writes in verse 7, a need or an opportunity to look for a second covenant. For the new covenant, as spoken by Jeremiah, came in the 6th century B.C. Right, So this came when Israel and Judah, both of them, were in exile. The 6th centuries before the inauguration of the new covenant. By mentioning this, the author reminds us that the new covenant was not an idea or a thought that was made up after Christ showed up on the scene, or as if when Jesus showed up, he, he gave us the idea of the new covenant. In fact, the anticipation of the Messiah, the anticipation of the Christ, was in part realizing that when he comes, the new covenant would come with him. So why was the old covenant exactly ineffective? Why was it at fault? Well, it's similar to why the old priesthood was. The people, look at verse 8, where does the fault lie? With them. 
And when we read on the first couple of verses that the author pulls from Jeremiah speak of the need for the new covenant. When God gives the new covenant, when he speaks of the new covenant to Jeremiah, in the giving of it, he speaks of the need for it. We see God speaking of the Exodus event in verse 9 and the covenant that he gave them. I delivered them, but yet they did not obey. And we need to understand that this old covenant was a covenant, the first covenant, was a covenant given to the people of God as one of grace. In other words, it was birthed out of grace. See, God had delivered his people without condition, without pretense, from bondage, from slavery. He came to them and he delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh before he gave them the law. And he had done so miraculously. The old covenant was then, after the Exodus event, was then given to the people of Israel at Sinai after the people were freed and after the people had witnessed the power of God. And it was given to them so that they may continue to enjoy the blessings of knowing and being with their God. We must not misunderstand and think that the old covenant was a covenant of legalism or one that was rooted in legalism. It was a covenant based on grace where the expectations to obey it were rooted in the gracious actions of God. That because of his love and what he had done for them, his people would continue to be holy and they would desire to be holy by obeying his commands as a loving response to his actions. However, the people, they got in the way. Another way of parting it, human nature got in the way. Paul speaks of this in Romans 8, 3, 4, and we'll all come back to this passage a few times this morning. Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. That's, that's the old covenant. Right? And he's, Paul is now talking about the new covenant, but he says the old covenant, the law, was weakened by the flesh, was weakened by human nature. And Paul goes on and says, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the new in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to spirit. So there we see the problem with the old covenant, human nature, and we see the solution, the new covenant, Jesus Christ. The problem that existed in the old is solved by the new. And the prophets, if you read the prophets in the Old Testament, they are full of language of, of God expressing his anger, his frustration towards his people and their nature. Their, their hearts that should have been circumcised remained uncircumcised. They were more willing to circumcise their foreskin than they were their hearts toward them. A couple of passages you can look up later are Jeremiah 3, 6-9 as well as Isaiah 1, 2 through 6, and essentially just read any prophetic book and you will come across multiple passages that speak of the adultery, the unfaithfulness of Israel. However, Hosea 9, 1 spells this problem out for us explicitly, where Hosea writes, speaking of God, God speaking through him, saying, Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the peoples, for ye have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. And that's the key. The people of Israel, despite having the covenant, despite God wanting them to be his people, they kept forsaking God. The transgressions of the old covenant were symptoms of a faithless and uncircumcised heart. And then in Isaiah 1.11, God actually speaks of the ineffectiveness of the old covenant itself. When the old covenant is currently in effect, God speaks of how it's not effective. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh. 
I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. I mean, what's God saying there? God's saying, like, look, the sacrifices I told you to do, the covenant I gave you, I've had enough of this because their heart was not in it. He wants the sacrifices, but he only wants the sacrifices when the heart is circumcised, when the heart is faithful to him. Later in Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah writes, We have all become like one who's unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The works that we do in the old covenant, they're dirty, they're unclean, they do nothing. We all fade like a leaf. Our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. So there's a problem, and it needs to be solved. The people need a new nature, they need new hearts, they need a way to understand, and they need a way to be made clean, holy, and fully, because the old covenant was not getting the job done. Again, this is a key focus among the prophets. The need of something and someone better. And it's not just the prophets, it's the whole Old Testament. Starting in Genesis 3, when the fall happens, and when God says, hey, look, one day the offspring of Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent. From that moment on, the saints of old are looking forward to the Messiah. They are looking for something better. Now, though the old was ineffective, we must not misunderstand verse 13 of our passage this morning. The author in verse 13 makes it clear that by God speaking of a new covenant to come, while the old covenant was in effect, it essentially makes the old ineffective and in need of replacing. In other words, by speaking through his prophets that a day was coming when the promises of the new covenant would arrive, then the one currently in place was becoming obsolete and was ready to vanish away. But we must not think this means that God made a mistake and that God was making a correction, a course correction, that he was trying to fix an issue. See, on the contrary, the old covenant paved the way for the new covenant. The old today has vanished, but that does not mean that the old is null and void. Rather, with the inauguration of the new covenant by the shedding of Christ's blood, the old has been fulfilled. The work of the old covenant has been wholly satisfied and achieved by Christ. Thus, Jesus is able to say on the cross, it is finished. Therefore, though the old and the new do not coexist together, the old is not useless. It is simply fulfilled. Its legal obligations have been removed, but not its lessons. Hear what Paul says about it in Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That's the old, that's the Old Testament, the old covenant. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. See, the old helps us understand how we are to be faithful in loving God with all our heart, mind, strength, and soul while loving our neighbors as ourselves. It teaches us what true righteousness is, what true holiness, true justice, and true compassion are. But most importantly, it teaches us who the Messiah is and who his people are to be. Now, let us consider the promises of the new covenant, consider what they do for us that the old covenant was unable to do. You can number and sort these promises in a few ways. This morning, I number four promises. Others, number three. Um, And it isn't surprising. They're all connected to one another. They all flow to and from each other. It's ultimately a a matter of of wording. Now, these promises of the new covenant are found in verses 10 through 12 of our passage. 
And we'll begin by looking at the first one found in verse 10, near the, near the end of verse 10, where God says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. This first promise is the promise of sanctification, that the laws and the teachings of God would be on our minds and written on our hearts. This isn't about uh, some internal tattoos or about miraculous verse memorization of God's word. Right? This isn't about pure knowledge. This is about obedience. This is about doing what God teaches. In the Old Covenant, in Deuteronomy 6, after we get the great Shema, that hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you are to love him, you are to obey him, with all your mind, strength, heart, and soul, and so forth, it goes on to describe exactly what that looks like in the house and in the community, that the word is to be on the signposts, you sit down to eat, you talk about his word, it is to be everywhere. But in Deuteronomy 6, the ability, the power to obey that word, to do that word with all your mind, strength, and soul, that is to do it within your own power. But in the new covenant, God does it. God puts his teachings in us, and the way that he does that is by his spirit. God spoke of this to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Note the end there. I will put my spirit within you and cause you. I will be the reason you walk in obedience. I will be the reason you obey my teachings. I am the source, I am the power, and you will be able to do so because you will have a new spirit, you will have a new heart that I put in you. Jesus, he anxiously desired to leave this earth, to ascend to the right hand of the Father for this purpose, so that he could send his spirit to dwell within us, so that his spirit could guide us and teach us. Here, what he says in John 16, verses 7 through 8, this is on the night that he's betrayed, right? And just before these verses, he's, he goes, look, you're sad because I'm leaving. Because I, I, I have told you I have to leave, I have to depart, and where I go, you cannot go. You are sad, but let me tell you, I need to go. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world concerning sin, excuse me, sin and righteousness and judgment. And along with the indwelling of the Spirit, we also get the sealing, the guarantee of the Spirit, right? Ephesians 1, 1 13 through 14. When we are indwelt by the Spirit, we are sealed by the Spirit. The human nature that got in the way of the old covenant is ultimately removed, but not completely removed, right? The human nature is removed from the seat of power. It's no longer self that sits on the throne. It is the Spirit of Christ that sits on the throne, the Holy Spirit. But again, our nature is not removed as we perhaps would like it to be. In fact, I know most of us would like it to be removed completely. See, the new covenant and its promises, they have been inaugurated, right? They have been started. They have been introduced. It has begun, but the promises have not been consummated. We need to understand the difference. We can partake of the promises because they have been brought to us in part, but they haven't been consummated. That is, we haven't experienced them fully or wholly. 
They have not been wholly accomplished in us yet. Thus, sin is still an issue. Human nature is still an issue. We still live with our fleshly, sinful bodies. But now, unlike before, when we were unregenerate, when we were in the dark, but now we have the Spirit in us. And by having the Spirit in us, we now have what we need to no longer sin. We now have the power to live the lives that we are called to live. And we also have what we need when we do sin, the Spirit. So while it is God who works in us, we still physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually seek out holiness. We still strive for holiness. And we do this by disciplining ourselves. But we do it not in our own power, nor in our own confidence, right? We boast in the Lord. We do it knowing that the work that we do is God's work. And because it is God's work, it is a righteous work. And we need to understand that righteousness is a gift from God. Hear what Paul says in Romans 5.17. He says, For if because of one man's trespass, some of Adam here, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Free gift of righteousness. Righteousness is a gift. And when we speak of righteousness, if you are to have the gift of righteousness, that means you are righteous. But to be righteous, you must do what is righteous. If you don't do what is righteous, you are not righteous. The righteous person does righteous things. And so part of us, when we are born again and we're given the gift of righteousness, is that we get to do righteous things. But we can't do righteous things if we don't do righteous things. Right? This isn't a, a passive reality. We just don't sit on the couch and do righteousness. This is us making the decision, I will do this and I will not do that. Why? Because it's a gift from God. I now have the ability to do this righteous act. Before I did not. Now I do. And I will do it. And, it will, and at times it will be very hard. But I know I, I can do it. Because he's faithful to see it through completion. So it should be a joy. It should be a desire for us. When we wake up in the morning, what, what righteousness will I experience today? And when we say that in a fallen world, essentially what we're saying is, what kind of suffering am I going to incur today so that I may know my Lord Jesus all the more? How will I get to know my Creator more today? How will I be disciplined today? How will I discipline myself, my flesh, so that I can know Him all the more and what everlasting life is and, and so on? And now I'm getting ahead of my notes. See, we can't know Him if we do not practice righteousness. Now, knowing God is actually the third promise of the covenant, but we need to remember, without the first promise, this sanctification, we cannot know him. We must be holy as he is holy. And this idea of us being holy, yeah, it comes from the old covenant, right? Leviticus 19.2, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. But even in the new covenant age, this reigns true. Peter 1 Peter 1, 15, 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, not just on Sundays, not just when you're doing church activities, in all your conduct, since it is written. And he quotes Leviticus 19, 2, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, let's look at the second promise, which is found in verse 10, but it's at the end of verse 10, where God says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is a promise of restoration. The relationship that was lost at Eden 
is restored by God. This was the desire of God in the Old Covenant, Exodus 6-7. Before he delivers his people from Pharaoh, he says, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Leviticus 26-12, I will walk among you and, be, and will be your God. You shall be my people. But note how he expresses this desire in Exodus 19:5 through 6. God, as he's giving the covenant before the people agree to enter into it, God says, now therefore, if, conditional, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenants, you shall, future tense, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he tells Moses, this is what you need to tell the people. So if you note here, it's conditional, and it has a future tense. But now hear how God says it through Peter after the advent or the inauguration of the new covenant in 1 Peter 2, 9, 10. You are a chosen, not you will be, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people of his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this reality, what happened there, wasn't that the people all of a sudden were like, we got this old covenant thing figured out. No, the new covenant has been ushered in. Jesus Christ has accomplished it. Now it is a present reality. But while it is a reality, we're not experiencing this reality in fullness. Not yet. Right? We still yearn for the presence of God that Adam and Eve had at Eden. We don't have that full restoration. We want to walk with God in his fullness as Adam and Eve did before Genesis 3. And because of the promise of the new covenant, we know that one day that will happen. Though we experience it in part now, one day the fullness of God will dwell among us. This is how scripture ends. Revelation 21, 3-4. And John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. Right? He, heaven comes down to earth. God's fullness comes with us, to us. And they will be his people. God himself, the fullness of him, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall be, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's the day of consummation. That's the day when the new, new covenant is wholly and fully consummated, when God dwells with us fully. And this is able to happen because, again, God does the work for it. He sanctifies us, and in doing so, we become his people. And both of these promises that we've just talked about, they happen because of the third promise. And because of the first two, the third promise is able to happen. And the third promise is found in verse 11. It's the whole of the verse. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Ultimately, this is what existence is all about. When you're pondering by the fire or wherever you're thinking, you actually have time of quiet and you wonder, why do I exist? This is the answer to the great existential question. We exist to know our Creator, we exist to glorify him. And regardless of how you feel about that, it does not change the reality of it. 
we need to understand that everlasting life, life that is eternal, life that, will, that transcends death, cannot be found, cannot be experienced if one does not know God as he or she is created to know God. Those who do not know him will not enter the kingdom. Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says, I will, then, I, then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, let me take a moment to deal with a common misconception. This promise is not saying that teachers are not necessary. I don't need anyone to teach me the word because God right here says no, one, no one's going to need anybody to teach them to know the Lord. We need to understand that the context and the meaning behind this. See, in the old covenant, we had a mixed community. We had the people of God who were faithful, and we had those who were unfaithful. We had the people of God, the true people of God, of circumcised hearts, but we also had the political entity, the, the ethnic nation of Israel. Both were part of the old covenant. It's a mixed community. Thus, the people had to be continually taught and exhorted to holiness and knowing God. In other words, to say to your brother, to say to your neighbor, to another, know the Lord. In the Old Covenant, it was essentially to say, know his righteousness. Live according to his ways. Live as he would have you live. You can't know the Lord unless you are walking in obedience. Therefore, because you're not walking in obedience, know the Lord. Know his commands. Know his statutes. However, in the New Covenant community, this community is, is not mixed. The New Covenant community is, everyone in it is regenerate. Everyone in it is saved. Now, to be clear, in, in the local church, right, the local church is the visible expression of the New Covenant. And within the local church, as Jesus tells us in the Gospels, we'll have the wheat with the tares and the goat and the sheep. That's going to happen. We do our best to, to weed them out, to protect the flock, but we can only do so much. However, in the eyes of God and the universal church as a, at large, the new covenant, the true new covenant, the true church, everyone knows God. Everyone is saved, and those who are truly members of the new covenants are not mixed. The old covenants, it was mixed. There's no way around it. That's why it was at fault. In the new covenants, no, it will not be mixed because it is God who does the work. Thus, everyone knows him because his spirit is in them. Now, of course, we know him in varying degrees, right? Some of us know Jesus, Jesus and God, the Father and Spirit. We understand him more than others. Hence the need for teachers. Hence the need for discipleship. I mean, the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 19, 20, Jesus says, teach them. Right? So clearly we are called to teach but that teaching, again, isn't so much like the teaching of a mysterious knowledge. Rather, it's a teaching of knowledge that God has already revealed to the church and provided. And exactly uh, what we are teaching is, is that we're showing you how to live. We're just illuminating the path that has already been blazed for us. Now, let me get back to the significance of knowing God. Because we cannot misunderstand this. We cannot overestimate the need, the urgency for us to truly know God. Jesus, in John 17, 3, if you know John 17, this is his priestly prayer at the end of the upper room discourse, right before he is betrayed. And at the start of the prayer, his focus is on eternal life. 
And he says, this is eternal life. So if you're ever wondering what is everlasting life, what is ever eternal life, we have the answer. It's right here. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. But we must understand that knowing Jesus is not simply a confession of the lips. It is not simply enough for anyone, especially in America, to confess Jesus is Lord. The demons confess the same. And the ones whom Jesus said in Matthew 7, 23, depart from me, they were confessing with their lips. Lord, Lord, Jesus. They were doing works. And in the name of Jesus, and yet Jesus said, I don't know you, because they didn't know him. And why did they not know him? Because they were workers of lawlessness. They didn't do the will of the Father. They did things in his name. And with their lips, they were going around saying, Jesus is Lord, but they did not know him. See, we must know Jesus beyond a name on a page and a name on our lips. Nowhere in Scripture is mere verbal confession enough. And you might be thinking, well, what about, what about Romans 10.9, where Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Okay, well, Rome doesn't have freedom of religion, right? So confess Jesus is Lord, one, is an act of treason. But two, beyond that, like, we don't even need that. Just keep reading. He says, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you believe that, well, righteousness is going to flow from that. You will be obedient to his commands. You will be a regenerate member if that is truly true in your heart. It's not like an optional thing. Like obedience for the new covenant member, it's not, it's not optional. It's part of the new nature. So to know Jesus is to say that one's heart, one's soul, ultimately knows him and desires to know him, to be with him. Right? We desire to practice righteousness. We desire holiness. We desire to have nothing to do with wickedness. A member of the new covenant will echo the sentiments of the psalmist in 80, Psalm 84.10, where the psalmist writes, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in tents of the wicked. Or Psalm 73.28, But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord Yahweh my refuge that I may tell of all your works. See, New Covenant people, believers in Christ, will have this desire. This will be your urge when you wake in the morning and you go, what do I want today? I want Christ. I want God. I don't care what happens today. I just want Him. So the question for you this morning is, do you desire this? Or do you desire the things of this world? Do you desire the sins of the flesh? Are you thirsty for the water that God provides? Or are you thirsty for water that will only leave you thirsty again? Now, let's look at the final and most important promise. Whereas all the promises flow to and from one another, this fourth and last promise, it is the keystone. It's the bedrock. It's the foundation. Because without this promise, the other three, they cannot happen at all. We cannot be sanctified, we cannot be his people, and we cannot know him if our own sin, if our own iniquity is not first dealt with. And so we find this promise in verse 12. God says, I will be merciful. Right? And, and note, I, forgive me, I skipped that important word there, for. Right? He gives us these three promises, and then he tells us for, and that's important. Because by him saying for, he's saying, because of the, these three promises happen because of this last one. Because I will be merciful toward their iniquities. 
and I will remember their sins no more. The whole point of the first three promises is to get us away from our sin, is to lead us into a life of obedience, but that only happens after God is merciful towards us. Hence, I mean, just, I mean, we see this picture in Exodus. He got them from the bondage first and then told them how to stay out of that bondage from a greater bondage. So we have the promise of forgiveness, that our sins will be no more. And again, the mercy of God is not new to the new covenant, right? I hope by now we understand that the Old Testament, New Testament, same God, same merciful, gracious, loving God. Not an angry God and all of a sudden change of mind or change of, of God. It's the same God who loves us. Exodus 34, 67. And, and this is a passage that once you have memorized it, uh, you will see it throughout the pages of the Old Testament. It is everywhere. Yahweh passed before Moses, right? He's on Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, passes before him and proclaims, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So why we have the mercy of God like that in the old in the new, the mercy of God is known in a way that wasn't possible in the old. And the reason it's known that way in the new is because of the work of our high priest, Jesus Christ, the mediator of this new covenant. See, the blood of goats, calves, lambs could not cause God to permanently forget our sins, since the need to continually offer up these other uh, sacrifices uh, for our sins. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his blood is enough. When, when, Jesus, when God tells Moses, but I will not allow the guilty to go unpunished, or we think of the justice of God, and we go, well, how has he dealt with my sin? The cross, our high priest. He's dealt with your sin by the shedding of the blood of his son. And the blood of Christ is enough. It's enough to cast our sin, and this is hard for us to fathom. This is, this is where our flesh comes in and goes, well, I don't think you're really forgiven. I mean, think of your sin. It's pretty bad. And this is why we gather is to encourage and to remind ourselves, no, the, sun, the blood of the sun is enough. It does cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. And you understand that saying, right? How, how do you get to the west from the east? I mean, you, you can't, right? Because as you go east, you always have west. And when you go west, you always have east. You can't get to those ends. You, you can't, the distance is too great, and it will always be separated. So by this forgiveness that God gives us, we are able to know him. Because those who are profane, those who are sinful, those people, they're unable to enter into his presence. And as such, are unable to know him. And they are unable to be his people. But those, we of the new covenant, who have been washed by the blood of Christ, we can draw near to God. We can draw near to the throne of grace of Hebrews 4. And we can do so at any time, and we can remain there, right? We don't have to step out like, like the old Levitical priest had to on the Day of Atonement. They could go in there for a moment, and then they had to go out, and then they had to wait a year. We can draw near, and we can stay there forever. And we do so because the righteousness of Christ, a gift to us, clothes us. And when we do sin... Even after being saved, we have confidence knowing that grace and mercy is there for us. Because again, the blood of the Lamb covers us. Now, let us deal with perhaps the most important question this morning. How are we, or how is anyone, to receive or partake of the new covenant? 
How are these promises to be enjoyed and realized in one's life? And to whom are the new covenant promises for? Well, Isaiah 42, verses 6-7, which Simeon in Luke 2 quotes as he blesses the Christ child as his parents bring him in to dedicate him. He answers the how as well as to the, the two. Uh, Isaiah 42, 6, 7 answers the how and the to whom questions. Let's read it. God says through Isaiah, I am Yahweh. I have called you. Now, when he's talking about you in this context, it's the Messiah. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Now, when God speaks a light for the nations. That's plural. He's talking about Gentiles as well. The new covenant, when we read the new covenant, God is saying to the house of Judah, house of Judah, uh, house of Israel, house of Judah, right? He doesn't mention Gentiles, but he doesn't need to. One, again, he's speaking specifically to the exiled community, to, to the remnant that, that's in Babylon, which is both the house of Israel and, and Judah at the time. So he's speaking to them directly. But in the bigger picture, throughout Scripture, Starting with Abraham, Gentiles are included. It goes through the nation of Israel. It is first to the Jew, right? It goes through the nation of Israel. And we, Gentiles, the pagan nations, when we believe, we are grafted in. So the new covenant is for both Jews and Gentiles. It's not just for the house of Israel. He goes on and says, To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. See, we have the promises of the new covenant that we just talked about, but we also have the person of the new covenant. And that shouldn't be a mystery at this point. The person is Jesus Christ. I give you, I give you the Messiah as a covenant for the people. Jesus is the substance of the new covenant. He is the one who has fulfilled the old. Matthew 5:17. Jesus says, Nothing that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And he is the one who inaugurates the new. Luke twenty two twenty. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is Jesus inaugurating the Lord's Supper, says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's not on that night that he inaugurates it. He inaugurates it more or less than 24 hours later when he's crucified by his blood. This is what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1.20 about Jesus being the substance of the new covenant. He says, all the promises of God, all the promises find their yes in him. That is why it is through them that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And again, in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul says, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Think about it. The wisdom Righteousness, sanctification, redemption, that's the promises. Those are the promises of the new covenants. Knowledge of God, our, our holiness, our obedience, our being separated, our being restored. That's all, that is who Jesus Christ is. If we go back to Romans 8, 3 and 4, right? God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, right? Old is ineffective, so God provided the solution by sending his son, Jesus. And the likeness of sinful flesh, for sin, he could have sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So in order for the law to be fulfilled in us, we must be in Christ, who walk not according to the flesh, but according 
to the Spirit. Therefore, if we are to enjoy the promises of the new covenant, then we must be found in Christ. We must be united in Christ. But what does that look like? Well, that's what the entire New Testament is. It's why it's written. The entire New Testament is written so that you may know what it's like, what it looks like to be found in Christ, to be in Christ, to know Him, to be united to Him. But Romans 1, 16, 17 sums it up well for us. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So let me describe this faith by which the righteous shall live. This is a faith that again the New Testament It aims to answer. It is by faith that we are united to Christ, but it's not any kind of faith, right? It's not a simple profession. This is faith that moves us to die daily. It's a faith that moves us to crucify our flesh daily, to take captive our thoughts, even when we don't want to, and make them obedient unto Christ. It is a faith that lives by the Spirit, as Paul tells us at the end of Romans 8, 4. It is a faith that moves us to live our lives out of fear and trembling, knowing the holiness of God, knowing the depravity of our sin. Yet, it's the same faith that moves us to live confidently in holiness, knowing it is God who lives in us, and it is God who is sure to be faithful till it is completed. It is as John Newton says in his famous hymn, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." The grace of God moves us both to fear, and it also relieves us of that fear. Faith that moves us to love others in a way we couldn't before. This is a faith that sees others for who they are in Christ, precious because the blood of the Lamb has purchased them, and it helps us to love those who are not in Christ as those whom Christ has died for. Without faith, John 3.16 means nothing. But because we have faith, we know what true love is. First John 4.9, John says, In this the love of God was made manifest us, among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we may live through him. And because we know this love, we love others. First John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. And that love isn't just a vertical love, it's a horizontal love. It's a, in the context of John, it's love for the, your neighbors, for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us not miss that the promises of the new covenant are to a people, not to an individual. And sure, yeah, individuals make up the people, but they're not directed to you so you could be apart from the group. They're directed to you so you could be part of a group, be part of a nation or in nations that are part of a gigantic nation, a gigantic kingdom. The promises do not go to the one who neglects the bride of Christ, but it goes to those who love and are part of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the church of which Jesus, our high priest, is the head, because he is the priest who mediates his better covenant that grants us all the blessings of himself. See, Christ is all we ever need in this life, because he's the new covenant. In fact, Christ is all that we can ever truly have in this life. Because anything else that we have in this life to include our families, they are fleeting, they are futile, they are temporary. When we die, Christ is the only thing 
we can take with us. Your faithful marriage of 50 plus years, that can't go with you. Your beautiful, faithful children, no matter how many you have, no matter what they do, you can't take them with you. Your charity, your generosity to the poor and needy, all that stays behind in a futile, fleeting world. All of your knowledge, experience, and work, regardless of where you've put it to, all of that remains. The only thing we can take with us is Christ. But in order to take Christ, you must have Christ. If you don't have Christ, you have nothing in this life and in the next. But if you have Christ, then you have all that you need for today, for tomorrow, for death, and for eternity. And if you want Christ, you must go to Calvary. But to go to Calvary, to go to the cross, you must first know the way. And you must be willing to endure the path that leads you there. You must be willing to go there without one crucial, precious thing that you want to bring with you, but you cannot take with you. Yourself. You cannot have Christ in yourself. You cannot have the promises of the new covenants as well as the life that you want. You must give it up. And it must be Christ who lives in you. You must be a living sacrifice. This is the will of the Father. Any other will that you pursue or cling to is the will of lawlessness. And we remember what happens to people who have such wills, such people, regardless of what they may profess, regardless of what they may do. Maybe they receive communion every Sunday. But such people will not enter the kingdom. For only those of the new covenant, those who know God, those who have his word written within themselves, who have a new spirit, a new heart, those who have been forgiven, it is they who will enter the kingdom. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder of your grace, your mercy towards we who have sinned against you. Our sins are many, but your mercy is more. We thank you that you have brought to completion this work in Christ, that your son was sent, he took on flesh, he died in our place, he satisfied your justice, for those who look and trust in him. Father, you know the hearts of all who are here. I ask that your spirit would do his work, that we would humble ourselves before you, that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, those who have been hesitant or, or, or they thought they knew you, but now the spirit's convicting them and having them wonder if they actually know you, I ask that you take them all the way, that you'd give them that new heart, that new nature, and that they would come to know your Son, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, as all of us are called to know Him, the Creator of all things, so that we may have everlasting life, and we may know everlasting life, and we may worship Him and praise Him and be with Him for all eternity. Father, I ask that for those of us who, who do know Your Son and know You, that You would continue to convict us of our sin faithfully that we will continue to seek out holiness, that you would help us to have a heart that desires a, a discipline, correction from sin, but also has a desire to do what is necessary to be holy as you are holy so that we can know you more. Continue to give us an appetite, a hunger for your truth so that we can 
walk in it and that we can know you and that we can be that bright light in the darkness that, that many people in this world desperately need to know. Father, help us to do this so that when the moment of death comes, and it will come, and it will come sooner rather than later, regardless of our age, our, our lives are so fragile, Father. So, Father, just encourage us. Help us to know the peace and joy of, of what it is to have everlasting life in this life. Father, we ask that you'd bless the elements before us as we come to the table, that you'd bless the cup and the bread, that we would be encouraged, that your spirit would convict us of sins that we're holding on to, if we're holding on to anything that we're unwilling to repent of. Give us a, a spirit of repentance. Help us to confess those sins, to turn away from it, to turn to you. Help us to go to you so that we can have what we need to do that. And But Father, as we confess these sins, we seek repentance. May we come to the table, partake of the elements, be reminded of what your son has done for us, confidently knowing that he is faithful to forgive the sins that we have confessed and that he is faithful and you are faithful that one day he will return and he's going to judge the righteous and the unrighteous and that the, the, the ways of this world one day will be no more so help us to be encouraged this morning as one body, as one family, and one faith, Father. Father, we thank you for these, these mercies. We thank you for these means of, of grace this morning. We thank you for this opportunity. May we continually sing praises of who you are forever, Father. And may we be bright witnesses, bright lights of the testimony of Jesus Christ, wherever you may lead us. We ask these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your wondrous Son, Jesus Christ, amen. At this time, we're into to a, we'll, we'll go into communion. If you are a believer who is not walking in unrepentant sin, you are welcome to come on up, grab the elements, take them to your seat, and then Doug will lead us in taking the elements uh, together. If you are walking in unrepentant sin, or if you're uncertain, or you're convicted, uh, please abstain uh, from the table. We do this weekly. All right, the table does not save you. It reminds you, gives you the taste of the gospel. But it's better not to bring judgment upon yourself. Let us deal with whatever is, is ailing you, spiritually speaking, uh, before God, before you, you, you partake. Um, and then afterwards, we will close with a couple songs of praise.